You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yo, welcome back to another episode of the podcast, people. I am so stoked to have you here today. Today, I am talking to J.B. Brubaker from August Burns Red. You might recall if you saw my social medias here a few weeks back, actually maybe around a month ago, I actually went to the 20th anniversary tour that August Burns Red was doing with Devil Wears Prada, and it was a great show. I got to hang out with their dude, Carlos, who is running the lights, and I learned a lot about all that stuff. Nothing like an educational experience packed into an awesome metalcore show. I had a blast. And I didn't realize I'd be talking to JB just a short time later. So here we are. We're talking today about, really, we take a history trip through his history trip. Is that a thing? Sure. I'm going to make it a thing. We take a history trip through his gear and we go really in depth. And it's an interesting evolution of sorts that I think especially August Burns Red fans are going to really get a lot out of. We have a great talk. It's really, really a good time. And I think you're going to enjoy this. Just a quick bit of business to get out of the way, and then we will dive right into this episode. I just want to remind everybody about the ways you can support the show with your gear buying habits. One of them being buying through ToneMob.com slash Sweetwater. If you click through that link, it's in the show notes, or if you just type that into your browser, anything you do through that link will help support the show. So if you go and even buy a small pack of strings, maybe some String Joy strings from Sweetwater, a little bit of that will come back and help me out, and it helps out way more than you might think. So ToneMob.com slash Sweetwater for any of your gear purchases would be immensely helpful. And if you're going to buy something that maybe Sweetwater doesn't carry, or maybe it's vintage or something like that, check out ToneMob.com slash Reverb. So if you go to ToneMob.com slash Reverb, the same thing applies. Anything you go through and do there, any purchases you make, a little portion of that comes back and helps support the show, and it really, really does move the needle in a major way. So I appreciate that very much for anybody that's able to do that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, that's enough business for this episode. Let's get into the episode. Here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Tone Mob Podcast, the show about guitar stuff occasionally, sometimes. I'm your host, Blake Weiland, and with me today, I have J.B. Brubaker from... August Burns Red. What's happening, dude? What's up, buddy? Not much. I'm uh, on the road right now, and we're spending a day off in Grand Rapids, and I'm excited to be able to show with you. Nice, nice. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of an interesting situation. So when you guys hit Portland, I was actually back in the lighting booth hanging out with Carlos. Oh, and, really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so That's funny. Small world. Yeah. Small world. Yeah, he he listens to one of the other podcasts that I do, and I mentioned that oh, I was planning on taking my son to this show, and he hit me up. He's like, come on down. So we were That's hanging awesome. out there. 
And I'd never really seen that world before the, the lighting board and all that stuff. It was very interesting. I see. Yeah, that's a world I know very little about as well. I'm glad that there are people capable of doing that because my bandmates and I are pretty clueless with <laughs> making the lights go blink. It was very, yeah, very well. You did your part. You know, it was very well orchestrated. <laughs> Good. I'm glad you thought so. <laughs> but yeah, that was that was interesting to see. I, I only kind of understood it, but at least now I have some semblance of an idea of what goes into it versus no idea whatsoever. Right. And yeah, it's and a it was different, a different perspective. A dope light show, too. So oh, good. I'm glad. Yeah. I, I like the light show on this tour. I think it's pretty sick. It's the coolest one we've ever done, I think. It's very cool. It's one of the coolest ones I've seen in recent memory. I really nice. enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, you know, I, people can't listen to this and see the light show, so they're going to have to go to the show to understand what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> come on out. But let's get into you. Obviously, you've been in this band for a very long time, but I know you didn't wake up uh, from day one as a baby in the band. So when did you start playing guitar, and how did this all unfold for you? I started playing um, right after high school when I was 18. I bought an Ibanez starter kit shortly after I graduated and um, had a few years of trying to learn myself, which was a slow go. Um, but I, you know, I learned how to, to turn up the gain and make my guitar chug and palm mute and those sorts of things, oh, yeah. which led to the early ABR stuff. And then I took a semester of lessons when I was in college, my sophomore year. I would have been hmm, 20 when that happened and that kind of opened some things up for me, got me to correct a couple fundamental flaws and get me using my pinky more still my worst finger on the guitar, but um, it was even worse 20 years ago. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I, as we progressed as musicians um, individually, we started to be able to write, you know, more complex music and play more difficult stuff and kind of uh, go down that path of becoming the band we are today. Right. And when you first started, what were some of your inspirations? You said you instantly kind of went into Chugsville. What well, were you listening to? Yeah. <laughs> right after high school, I was kind of going through this transition of um, – I was really into punk through high school. That was like my scene and what I was listening to and the bands that I cared about. And I was starting to get into um, some hardcore stuff and I guess some early metalcore stuff. Like, I guess we'll say I had a couple bands that bridged me from punk into hardcore. And Finch was one of those bands. I loved Finch so much my senior year of high school that, that, the anticipation for me for the album, what is what it is to burn, like while that album was like getting hyped up and until it was released, I was very excited about that. And um, they screamed a little bit, and that was like the first band I could tolerate was screaming. And then you know that band Thursday had some screaming stuff that that oh, I really yeah. liked. Um, in particular, the album Full Collapse was very important transitionally for me. And then I got into Poison the Well. Um, who were kind of I love that band. Yeah, me too. Yeah, Tear <laughs> from the Red and uh, Opposite December were huge albums for me. 
Um, and then I started getting into some like beat down hardcore stuff, like Bury Your Dead was really important to me. Um, on Broken Wings, some Eulogy Records bands from back in like 2003. Um, and I started going to a lot of hardcore shows, um, you know, just the like the underground fire hall stuff and VFW hall kind of things. I got really into my local scene um, to the point where I was putting on shows and promoting shows myself. And that's kind of how ABR started getting to play with some more national acts. You know, I would, I would book a national, you know, small tour and put it on at our local American Legion hall and then have ABR open it. And which was good for networking and it made a little bit of scratch that we could reinvent or I'm sorry, reinvest back into the band. And we use that money to, you know, upgrade our gear and buy a van and buy a trailer. You know, it's, it's, it's hard getting a band off the ground. So we did whatever we could to make a little bit of extra money back in those early days. Sure. Is it weird to look at the, the tours now, you know, you're selling out theaters Versus back in the day, you're like, oh, we were playing in a VFW hall opening for bands that could probably barely sell out a theater. Does you ever have to pinch yourself and just like take a step back? I mean, certainly if you look at the beginning to where we are now, it is hard to imagine what we've accomplished and, and the point that we, we've reached. Um, and it is, I, I even feel that way sometimes with just like the songs that we've written and where I started out as a player and stuff. But you know, never underestimate what you can accomplish in 20 years' time. That's a long True. time. <laughs> That's a long time. <laughs> like, it's, been, it's been a very slow climb. ABR never had a, like, a blow-up moment. We had some moments where, you know, we, we had a little buzz and stuff. And, um, you know, we ha- I, I just feel like our, our path was very grassroots and a slow and mm-hmm. steady climb. It wasn't – we never had a hit. You know, there was never a hit song that – that gave us like a 15 minutes of fame kind of thing, which, um, which is good. I think because the fans that we've accumulated over the years have been really dedicated and devoted and they've been along with us for a long time. And they're not, they're not fair weather. You know, they weren't here for one song or one album. They, they have a favorite album or two, but they generally seem to appreciate most of what we have done, you know, over Mm -hmm. the course of our 10 albums. So I'm grateful that we have such a dedicated following, even if it's not, you know, we're not a band that can go sell 5,000 tickets, you know, we're not, we're not playing arenas or anything, but we can, we can keep things steady and, and, and have almost what feels like a, a pretty organic fan band relationship. Like we know a lot of our, our fans, like we can remember them from meet and greets and, um, we know lots of them by name and like how many shows they've been to because like some of these, some of these people come out over and over and over and are at like, you know, 30, 40, 50 ABR shows. Like you just start to, you start to learn faces and names and, and hear their stories. And, and I think that it's a really cool, uh, connection that we've built with a lot of, a lot of these people over the years. Mm-hmm. And what do you attribute that to? Do you attribute that to just always being there or actually are you guys, a band that, because I've seen this in varying degrees with different bands, the amount that they're willing to hang out afterwards and say hello to people. And obviously that gets more and more compressed 
as careers progress and more and more people are showing up to shows. But it seems like you guys have always put an effort into ensuring that there's a connection there. It's not something that happened by accident, at least outside yeah. looking in. I think there has been a conscious effort made to ha- make ourselves fairly accessible to the people who want that kind of access to us. We, we share a lot online. We are happy to stop and chat, you know, if we're at a show and someone asks for, for a photo or wants to talk about something, um, especially our drummer, Matt, and our singer, Jake, over the years have been really good about after the show, you know, going to the barricade or going to the merch table and just hanging and talking to people for as long as it takes, you know, even mm-hmm. to this day, um, Matt hangs out at the barricade after every show and takes photos and, and, and talks to people for, you know, until they kick everyone out of the venue. Right. So, <laughs> and, you know, we do lots of meet and greet stuff. Um, every time we headline, you know, at least in North America, we'll, we'll do like a meet and greet before the show for people who are interested in that. And I think we're pretty good about, you know, interacting with comments and stuff online. I, I, I don't know. There's, there's, we've just kind of taken that path because there is the other path of being like really mysterious and you give very little access and you keep um, everything very close to the vest. And there's something to be said about that as well, because that leaves a lot of room for intrigue, which is a valuable thing in itself. There's not much intrigue when it comes to August Burns Red. Like people know, they know the guys and they know what they're getting from us. Like we have a, uh, we have a reputation, I guess. And like it, what you see is kind of what you get. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. The intrigue thing is something that has become very rare now in this day and age. You know, there's shows like this where bands sit down for an hour plus for conversations and you get to know those people pretty well uh, if, for those that are willing to do it. I feel like there's, there's barely any bands that have that same level of intrigue that was even prevalent back in the early 2000s because even then you still looked at, I mean, like the cover of The Devil and God and like was like, what's going on with these masks? And nobody still knows what, what was up with that, you know? Right. And, uh, and this day and age, that is something that I think is lost. I don't, I wouldn't personally trade it, but I do miss it occasionally, just like the wondering what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah, when I was a kid, I didn't even know what the guys in the band looked like in most Not cases. Not at all. Yeah. Or their names. And now I know like names and I can picture everyone. And yeah, social media has really shined a light on all of those things that were mysterious back in the day. Like if the band didn't have a promo photo in the CD liner notes, chances are I'd, I had no idea what they looked like. Yeah. I remember the first time I was listening to Unearth. That was a turning point for me musically. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, this, these guys are probably big and scary. And I didn't have any reference for what they probably looked at like. And then I looked at their liner photos like, those look like regular dudes. Right. <laughs> Boy, and they, I know they are. And that's the case for most bands. Just, mm-hmm. just at least in my experience. And I've toured with quite a few bands over the years. Everyone is just, not everyone, but most people are just normal dudes trying to do their band because they have a passion for it and they love it and it's fun and you know you do it as long as you can or as long as it makes sense and you know it's it's all i I think it's all about the love 
you know, it's yeah. not about, I don't think most of the folks that I know that got into this style of music were doing it for a fortune and fame. You know, it was, it was passion projects. Right. I remember having that conversation with my dad back in the day, you know, everybody who maybe gets into something who starts more traditional. I grew up on country music and I still love country music, mm-hmm. but as soon as I started getting into punk and hardcore and metalcore, my family obviously had some reservations about that because they didn't sure. understand it at all. And I remember talking to dad about that and he was like, well, where are these bands going to go? They're not going to be, you know, they're not going to have big careers or anything. And I'm like, that's not the point. That isn't the point of it. But right. fast forward to now, I've had this conversation a lot lately. I've been interviewing a lot of bands from this, this scene the one that blows me away, I, even back then, I could have never seen this coming. I look at the success the success that Lorna Shore has been having lately. Oh, sure. Yeah. And I'm like, this is not a uh, – the listeners are getting tired of me saying this probably, but I bring it up on every episode. This is not a soft band. This is not a even toned down slightly band. This is a very intense band. And for them to be as popular as they are kind of blows my mind. It is extreme music for sure. But um, I think about I, I'm not sure what their demographic looks like. Like, I don't know if they're drawing, you know, a new I think they probably are drawing, you know, younger, a younger audience than August Burns Red is. They're a younger band than us, too. But um, I can remember being a kid and even listening to punk music. And I always wanted to find, you know, the the fastest band I could. You know, I wanted I wanted mm-hmm. the faster drums and the. You know, it was all about finding like the next step in extreme and which eventually led me in, into, you know, hardcore and, and metal and stuff because it was just more extreme. Um, and I think there's something to be said for Lorna Shore and them scratching that itch for people who want to hear the most extreme music that they can find. And that's really extreme music. And there's just something really incredible what that vocalist can do. Um, yes. he can make insane sounds with his voice. And if you can tolerate, uh, metal vocals, which I know not everyone can, but if you're into that sound, like that's a really appealing thing. I mean, he, he's very special, so I can understand, mm-hmm. um, the appeal. And then of course there's the, when a band blows up the way they have, I think that there's also just all that hype. So many people are talking about it. It's, it's, it's like a underground cultural event when a band blows up the way they are. Like everyone is, if you're part of that scene and that movement, you're in tune with what's happening there. And I think that's Mm -hmm. a factor as well. Sure. I mean, the fact that I've mentioned it like five times in the last few months, I'm sure has led at least one or two people to what is he talking about? Yeah. To go check it out. Yeah. So (laughs) so I I keep bringing it up because it seems relevant to the, the conversation. So it's a, it's just a, a weird world we're living in now where those type of things are even possible. Right. Have you showed that band to your dad? <laughs> I'm not going to. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it would be a waste of time. I mean, hilariously enough, so my son didn't wasn't able to go, unfortunately. He had been a bit under the weather, but uh, he's seven, and mm-hmm. August Burns Red was going to be his first metal show, and I was really excited. We were, oh, that would have been cool hang out in the back and, and, you know, have this moment. Cause he's, he's always been exposed to this type of music. This yeah. is not new or weird or scary to him. He's like, yeah, I'm in, I'm into it. In fact, he likes country less than he likes metal, which is 
just kind of, you know, my dad's like, ah, oh, what are you doing to your family? But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, if you're still showing them country, you should be happy with that. There's, I don't think there's a lot of folks who have the country and metal crossover. Those are kind of uh, polar opposite genres. They are, but I don't know. The the more like the one of the admins for the Tone Mob Facebook group, Jason. Shout out Jason. Big black metal fan. Like he's yeah. always been into black metal and really extreme genres of metal. But he hit me up and and the other admin knowing that we were country fans and he's like, "All right, guys, where do I even start?" And so he gave him a list and come back. He's like, "You know, Merle Haggard's pretty good." <laughs> so you never know. The, like the real like, country. Yeah, I see. you're yeah, not yeah. talking like necessarily the I mean, there's a as with every style of music, there are wide ranges of possibilities. Um, I, I specific. I, yes. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I think the old school country stuff is a lot cooler and more interesting than the you know, the pop country of of today. Hi, I'm Vincent and I'm here to talk about the Mercury X. My dad's always going on and on about how cool Maris is. He really went off on one about the Mercury X the other day. He said something about a 4,800 hertz sample rate and 99 preset locations in 33 banks and something along the lines of the most advanced reverb pedal ever devised by man. That's all true, but I only care about one thing. This pedal sounds sick. So make sure you check out the Mercury X and all the other fine products at maris.us, as well as fine retailers worldwide. All right, Dad, now can I have my Pocky? How exactly do artists get their music on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, Tidal, all these services? How in the world do you get your music there? Well, in the past, you had to use something called a record label. But these days, you can use DistroKid. DistroKid is the absolute easiest way to get your music up on streaming services. And it's the most affordable way to do so. Not only do plans start at $22.99 for the entire year, that's less than 2 bucks a month, DistroKid also does not take a cut of your streaming revenue, unlike some other services out there. Even better if you sign up by going to ToneMob.com slash DistroKid. That's ToneMob.com slash DistroKid. One more time, that's ToneMob.com slash DistroKid. You'll get 30% off. That's right, 30% off. They're already extremely reasonable prices. So go to ToneMob.com slash DistroKid and get your music out there. I, I literally, this isn't 100% the reason, obviously, this would be a bad decision, but a huge factor in me quitting my job and getting into this full time was the fact that the radio station at the office where I was, I couldn't change it. It was, I, I'm the junior guy, it was what it was, and it was permanently affixed on modern quote-unquote country radio, and it drove me insane. Ooh, yeah, I that's tr- tough. I tr- I tried to spend as much time out in, in the yard as possible just so I didn't have to listen to that. It, it was like ice picks to me. It'd be like so. if your dad had to listen to Lorna Shore at work all day. It would It'd be exactly like that. <laughs> Except I think he might be able to get to a point where he can tune it out, you know, or at least turn on a, 
a pressure washer or something. Yeah. Uh, but yes, <laughs> it's very much like that. That's funny. So we, you know, sometimes talk about gear on this show. I trick people into thinking that's what we're going to talk about. Maybe yeah. we can actually talk about some of that a little bit. So you started with the Ibanez starter pack. Yes. And you mentioned that doing some of those early shows helped you upgrade the gear. What was the progression like? Um, I bought a really small PV combo amp off of a buddy um, shortly after I bought my starter kit because I wanted something bigger. But, you know, it was, I don't even know what speaker was in it. It might even have been a bass amp. It was not nice. But that's what I started playing with when August Burns Red first started jamming. And then I bought a... I bought a 5150 half stack, an amp and cab. Um, that was the next, that was like my first real amp setup. And to this day, I mean, the 5150 is my favorite amp of all time. And like was pretty fundamental in August Burns Red sound for, for, for ages. But um, from there, you know, it was starting to tinker with uh, some pedals and stuff and, Getting a noise gate was a big deal. Um, yeah. I got one of I got a Boss NS2 in 2004, which was a game changer because boy, I could not stop without you know stop my guitar without feeding back for the life of me, <laughs> and I had no idea that a thing like a noise gate existed. Like that was a game changer for me. Um, and then, boy, I mean, how deep do you want me to go here with this Look, progression? Deep, okay, deep, deep. Yeah, let's <laughs> dig in. Okay. Um, where did I go from there? We eventually got into, I, I swapped out the 5150 cab, the PB cab for a Mesa boogie recto cab, which was mm -hmm. our staple as long as we used cabs. And even to this day, if we were going to use a cab on stage, which we're not currently, um, I would be running a, a recto cab by Mesa. Um, there was a time in like 2006 when we kind of jumped on board the Framus bandwagon. There was a lot of bands playing Framus heads and they were, and they were giving them out for free. Whoa. So we were like, Whoa, we're going to get free amps with this endorsement. This is so sick. Um, and we, they looked cool. You know, you turn them on, they had this red backlit thing going on and they were like all like metal encased and stuff. Um, but they didn't sound good in retrospect. Like it was a, it was a big step back from, from what we were using with the PVs. So that was kind of fleeting. We, the novelty of getting the free gear and the endorsement wore off with that. Um, and we went back to playing the PV stuff. Um, and at this point I would have gone from, I, the Ibanez starter guitar. I didn't have very long. I, I, I actually bought, an ESP guitar off of Brent, some sort of LTD. Brent's the other guitar player in the band. Um, mm -hmm. Early on. And like when we played our first shows, I was playing his old guitar. And that wasn't like a nice instrument either. It was probably like a $250 guitar, but it was, you know, better than my $100 Ibanez at the time. Sure, sure. <laughs> so, um, and I, it's funny, I eventually sold that guitar to our now old original vocalist john hershey who still owns it um i think he still has that guitar but uh 
I was really into ESP. And when ABR got signed in 2005 and started touring, you know, at the end of that year and in 2006, I got linked up with the ESP folks and had a deal with them for a short time. I bought a couple of guitars um, in between that time. And so I bought an ESP LTD H1000, the Horizon series. And I also bought a Viper um, in the SP Viper, which is like the SG shape guitar that they did, which I I accidentally broke in the studio while recording Thrill Seeker. Um, It was sitting on the floor next to where I was tracking. And I knocked over the chair that I was sitting on and it landed on the neck and snapped the neck. So that guitar Ah. was, was then trash after that. That was a bummer at the time. Um, but I played that, that H 1000 for years. I really liked that guitar a lot. I think I bought it on eBay for like 700 bucks. It treated me very well. I used it for a long time, um, all the way through the recording of our album messengers actually. And it was around that time. Like I, I played it in the composure music video, but it was in 2008. We were on the road with, uh, every time I die and I was having, an issue with an instrument. I forget what it was, but I, Brent was with Ivan at the time and I was working with ESP and we were a small band. We weren't a priority there. Um, and I was having trouble with, you know, my artist rep getting an instrument out, shipped out to me. And I started playing, um, one of Brent's RGA 121s that he had, that Ivan had given him. And this was a big tour for us at the time. Um, it was every time I die from first to last, the blood, um, ABR, and then a band called the human abstract was opening. It was the, uh, take action tour. That was like an annual tour that ran, um, back in the day. That was like, a, a, a it was like a charity, um, a charitable tour. I forget what the charity. I remember that tour. Yeah. Yeah. It was cool. They ran it every year and it was always a good no. And people came out and the shows were pretty big for us. Um, and I was like, yo, I'm playing like these pretty big shows and our record messengers is, is kind of getting some buzz. Like people like it. It would be, I think, in the interest of ESP to like kind of take care of me in this situation with this guitar. I'm, I was like, I'm playing Ibanez right now in front of, you know, a thousand people every night. Um, and it just never really got fixed, I guess. And I switched to Ibanez at that time. I signed a deal with them in 2008. And I've been playing Ibanez ever since, um, as you know, just kind of giving the summary of my, my guitar gear side of things. Um, I really love the RGA series and I played those for years and years and years. And that's the series, um, that I don't know that they make, uh, they don't make the RGA 121, which was my favorite guitar anymore, but I now have a signature guitar with them. I, the past like four years or so, I've had uh, I've been a signature signature guitar, and that's based off of the RGA one twenty one. Like it's that same body style, and feels really similar to that. So I think it's cool that um, my signature guitar can kind of carry on that shape and style guitar since Ibanez isn't doing that um, as a production model, you know at this time mm-hmm. hold on one second i need to take a drink of water no worry <laughs> all right um and i always continues yes yeah. 
there's so many facets to this, dude. If I'm, I'm like, I wanted to try to summarize the the guitar side of things. And I guess the other thing is, I'll, I'll speak on the the style of my guitar, like the finish of it. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, my guitar, I pl- for many years I played a, a a bright green guitar that had uh, white stripes on the side of it, mm-hmm. and uh, those stripes came out of boredom one day when we were on work tour. Our guitar tech and I were just messing around, and we just put some white electrical tape stripes on the side of the guitar, and then that just kind of became my my thing, I guess. And now all of my guitars have the same white stripe pattern on them or whatever color the stripes may be. Um, but just, you know, a little backstory on that. Nice. So, um, that's the guitar side of things. I play D'Addario guitar strings. I always have, I play, um, 10 to 52. That's my gauge, uh, light on the top, a little heavier on the bottom. And, um, we tune to drop C for anyone who cares about that. For and everything? Been, well, no, it's interesting you ask. We we have stuff in all kinds of different tunings now, various drops, but for the purpose of live, we um, we transpose our tuning as to not have to switch guitars constantly. I was going to say, I didn't see a lot of guitar switching. So <clears throat> No, I a, play the same guitar in drop C for the whole set. We go down as low as drop A, which is a pretty big step, but... Um, it sounds good. They've really, the technology for dropping your tuning, you know, has come a long way. I, for years I was using the Digitech drop pedal for that, which mm-hmm. does an amazing job. Um, but what I didn't like about that was if I would fail to hit the button or like set the knob properly to, you know, the tuning I wanted to be in. And then, you know, if you're like, if you go into a song and, your drop pedal's not set the way it should be, you know, and you're a half step off. It's like the worst thing ever. I can, yeah, I can remember playing, <laughs> a, playing a show. Dude, this is like one of – I was so angry. We, we were playing a show at the National Enrichment. It was in 2019. I believe it was the first show of a, a tour we were doing called the Dangerous Tour. And it was a sold-out show in this beautiful theater. And we opened with the song Dangerous from our record Phantom Anthem. And we walk out on stage – big epic intros playing and i i start the the set by myself playing this clean guitar lick um that starts the song and our guitar tech had failed to push my drop pedal to the on position (laughs) so i was not in the right tuning (laughs) i was a half step off i was in drop c i need to be in drop b and i come in a half step off of the intro which immediately is like huh like I'm sure it sounded terrible off the bat. Yeah. And then the rest of the band comes in and I'm like, what sounds off? What's going on? And then I realized like that I, my drop pedals not on, I'm in the wrong tuning and that it was just a awful way to start the show and to start the tour. Like I was just like, Oh my God, are you serious? I was so, I was, it wasn't as big of a deal looking back as it was for me in the moment, but I was really pissed at the time. I mean, I get it. Yeah, because you want it to be Especially perfect. When you're like, what? Well, when you're like, what is going on? Yeah, and I was embarrassed. I'm sure I was embarrassed, and that made me feel angry. So, um, but obviously, I can laugh about it now. It's it's fine. But um, so now to drop my tuning live. Well, hold on. I, I'm going to back up because I'm going to Go reveal. Yeah. I'm going to reveal too much of my rig. 
without going through the the, the journey. The journey, um, right, 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 right. So, okay, we'll go back to my amps. Um, I was playing Framus. This is back in like 2006. We eventually abandoned that when we started recording more and realized that the amps just didn't sound that good. So we went back to, um, you know, playing 5150s. We did some some years of playing 5152s because the clean channels were were better. Um, and one thing that was very important that I admitted that that was key to our tone was using um, an overdrive pedal in front of the amp, which was a trick we learned from Adam D when we were in the studio. Adam D from Killswitch Engage taught us this when we were recording Thrill Seeker. Um, he produced mm-hmm. that album. Um, we used a Maxon OD808 in the studio, mm-hmm. and Brent used that live for many, many years until he went to digital amps. I used the Ibanez TS9, which kind of does the same thing, just a slightly different flavor. But that just makes the tone so much bitier um, to have that overdrive pedal in front. And I think that's like pretty standard fare now. Everyone knows that trick. That's like just an old metalcore trick that isn't a secret or anything. But yeah, I think uh, it's like it's my favorite use case for a, a tube screamer. I'm not a big mm-hmm. tube screamer guy most of the time, but when I do use one, that's where I use it. For sure. Yep. It, it's it's great for that. Really makes the tone bitier, makes those chugs really snap. Um, and then I also started using delay and reverb pedals um, around this time, probably in like 2007. Um, BT Bam, uh, Between the Barry and Me, um, showed me some tricks with that kind of stuff. And I remember uh, Dusty, the one guitar player for BT Bam, being like, dude, you know, when you play on the clean channel, if you use the neck pickup, like it'll sound way better. Like that was like a big, (laughs) a big reveal for me at the time. Like I didn't know that. I was like, no way. This is like, I can remember where I was. I was in Poughkeepsie, New York playing this venue called the chance standing out back in the parking lot. And he told me that. And I was like, Whoa, like blew my mind with how much better my clean tones could be with, with playing the, the neck pickup. BT band taught us a lot of stuff over the years learned a lot from them just about playing and gear and, and stuff like that. But, uh, let's see. Oh, and then another cool thing I learned along my tone journey was this is, I learned from the, the late Tom Searle from architects. Sadly, he's not with us anymore. Um, mm-hmm. but he, we were on tour with them in Australia in 2009. We were both supporting Parkway drive and he taught me that running my effects through the effects loop, sounds way better like i had never done that before i always ran you know my time base effects um just in front of my amp with all my other pedals and i started running my delay and reverb through the effects loop which just made them soar and sing so much more i was actually sharing gear with tom on that tour we shared an amp and i just used his uh his pedals um and that was like a game changer for me. Like if you want to get into like the nuances of delay and stuff, oh, yeah. um, that really made a big difference. I guess some people might prefer the sound of a delay in front of the amp. Um, if for a, I mean, it's a different sound, but I, I like the spaciness and how clean it sounded going through the effects loop. So starting in 2009, that's how I was running my, uh, my time-based effects. Um, what's next? 
Okay, the next big step for me was, this was probably around 2011 um, when we started toying on Leveler. I started, I had a lot more pedals at this time. I started, you know, having a tremolo pedal and chorus and all these other effects that are, you know, standard effects that guitar players use. But I, I was struggling to make the big tone switches live that I needed to make, you know, the whole tap dance on your pedal board thing was growing old for me. And I just wanted to play. I didn't want to worry about hitting five buttons to get the tone where I needed it to be. So I got into, um, what is it even called now? I, the thing I bought was uh, from RJM Music. It was called the RG16. I think it's now called the Rack Gizmo. And basically, it was this looper that you could plug all your pedals into and then program um, different patches, basically, that you controlled with MIDI switching. Like, you know, I could make it so I pressed one button on my MIDI switcher and it would call on the programming to switch my amp to clean and turn on my delay pedal and turn off my overdrive pedal and turn on the, like you could program it to do whatever you wanted right? Um, through a gazillion loops. I mean, I think there was 16 loops on it. That's why it was called the RG 16. And it was cool. Cause it all, it could also do the amp switching. Um, and this was, I was like really proud of this rig that I had built. Um, it, it had like, you know, a bunch of rack stuff in it and I had a, a drawer with a bunch of pedals that lived on a shelf on, on this rack drawer. And I spent all this time like custom building my cables and wiring it all up and trying to make it neat. It was, it was a mess. I never did have a very, very clean. It's the kind of thing that I should have had. Probably someone help me um, <laughs> with the cable <laughs> management. <laughs> sure. But I can relate to that for sure. Yeah. It, but it was really like a game changer for how I played live and not having to worry as much about pressing a ton of buttons. Um, and that got me through for a few years. I think I probably went that route from like 2011 to 2014, maybe. Okay. And quite a while. Yes. Um, and this was about the time where digital amps started getting more and more popular. Um, XFX was, was getting more popular. The XFX two was out. Um, Kemper was on the scene kind of the early years of Kemper and I had this B rig version of my, my, uh, rig that I used to fly to Europe and, you know, for all the international stuff we do. And it lived in like a six space rack that I had to like keep at a certain weight to make it be able to fly and stuff. And I did my best to make it secure because, you know, baggage handlers throw your gear around. They don't care. Mm -hmm. And I got to the point where this was becoming such a burden. Like I would, we'd land and I'd collect my bag and I'd look inside this rack and it was like a bomb went off inside it. Nothing was where it was supposed to be. Everything was, pedals are everywhere. The cables are undone, stuff's broken. And then it's like trying to figure out what's wrong. And like I put it back together and then there'd be a problem with it and dissecting they're troubleshooting the problem with this intricate rack was just becoming such a headache. And when flying and playing like random festivals all over the world and stuff, like I just, it became unreliable and I needed a new solution. And I was very resistant to go to digital amps because 
I was so invested in time and money into this rig that I had built. And I loved it. Like I, I genuinely was attached to it. I thought it was so cool. And I was like into the analog pedals and everything. Um, I just wasn't ready to take that step into digital. And then it got to the point where I was just like, the headache of what I'm trying to do here is not worth it. The technology is improving with digital amps. Um, I guess it's like time for me to try to dip my feet into the water here. So I, you know, swallowed my pride and I bought a Fractal Wax FX2. And I learned that whole interface, which was, you know, there's a steep learning curve there. But I learned it and I got comfortable with it and I built a gazillion patches and presets for probably like 70 songs over the years. I used a, I used the Axe FX2 and I eventually upgraded to the Axe FX2 XL Plus, which just had more processing power for making more complex um, patches and stuff. And that was, that took me all the way to 2021. I was using the XFX2. The XFX3 came out probably around 2019, 2020 maybe. And I was reluctant to, to upgrade to that because I didn't want to have to start from scratch on building presets for the songs. I had so sure. many, so many songs programmed. And you can't use your XFX2 patches on the XFX3. Uh, the XFX3, you got to start over. Oh, no. I didn't realize yeah. that. Yeah. It's not like a quick port over from one to the next. But I I took the plunge eventually, switched to the XFX3. It's far superior to the XFX2. Um, our audio engineer helped me dial in a way better, like, just basic rhythm tone that I play live. And I'm really happy with it. It, it does the... Uh, the drop tuning stuff for me. Like I don't have to use the, uh, drop pedal anymore. That was the one pedal I was still using on my pedal board. Um, was, was the Digitech drop pedal because the XFX two did not do a good job of dropping the tuning. Like there was too much latency and it was kind of buggy. It just didn't sound good, but the XFX three fixed that up a lot. So now I don't have to worry about, um, using the drop pedal and my pedal board's really basic. Now it's just a, um, fractal FC six, which is a fractal foot switch has six buttons on it. Um, I have a tuner on there, um, a little, uh, polytune, like the polytune mini from, mm -hmm. I think that's TC electronics. And I have yeah. a wah pedal where it's just an expression pedal, but I use it for wah generally speaking. Uh, and then an AB box to switch between my wirelesses. If I want to switch guitars during the set, but, uh, the pedal board is almost strictly there for backup because I have all of my uh, uh, scene changes on my Xbox and like all, all the effects stuff programmed into MIDI on, on our computer with playback. So I don't actually control any of my, my switching unless the computer were to fail and I'd like, you know, I'd have it there as a backup, which would be a nightmare for me at this point because it's been so many years since I've had to manually push the buttons and I'm not like in practice of, <laughs> of manually stepping on my, on my buttons. Um, I mean, that like, takes practice in itself. Yeah. Like which one's which I don't remember. Right. Now. Exactly. Mm -hmm. and I'd, I'd be like, geez, what, why well, the, fortunately the, the patches are all labeled. Like there's a little screen for each button, but it would, 
BMS. I'm I'm very disconnected from having to, you know, switch things on and off myself, which is another way that technology has just made things a lot easier for musicians. I mean, it's wild to think how much I was tied to standing on a pedal board when I was younger. And now I can wander all over the stage and I don't have to like run back to a certain spot to press a button to turn my guitar to the clean channel. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's very liberating. I can just worry about playing and putting on a show and not worry about uh, making sure I'm on the right patch. <laughs> <laughs> Some people probably think that's really lame and I'm cheating, I guess. There's, I'm sure there's purists who, who don't um, respect that, but... I think MIDI is such a powerful tool and you can do so much with it. Um, and I've come to really embrace that side of things. Like I'm, I'm just so far into the digital world now with, uh, with gear. And it's funny looking back on like the rig, that was my pride and joy. That was this two amp eight space rack, like monstrosity that I was hauling around in and out of venues every day. And now I have a three space X effects and like, my two wirelesses, like it can all fit in a very small rack and fly very easily. And my tones are the same, no matter where I play in the world, everything's just dialed, which is nice. We are brought to you today by Sweetwater, specifically the gear exchange. You may have heard about this. This is a place where you can go to buy and sell your used gear. Maybe you got a pedal over there. That's just kind of collecting dust. Maybe there's something you've been eyeing from the Sweetwater catalog. Well, right now is a great time to turn that unused gear into something you're actually going to use. Even better, if you sell on the gear exchange, you can keep 100% of the sale as long as you choose a Sweetwater gift card as your payout method. That is not too shabby, because... Let's be honest, most of this buying and selling we do is just to fund new gear purchases, and that is a great way to reach a wide variety of customers and keep 100% in your pocket, or rather, on your pedal board. So go check out the Sweetwater Gear Exchange and turn that unused gear into something that's actually going to help you write that next huge riff. Do you use digital stuff recording now, or is that primarily live? I use digital stuff recording as well, um, especially cleans and crunch stuff. However, 
with rhythms, rhythm tones on the album, like the heavy gain stuff, we might track it um, with like a plugin or something. Um, but then we will go back and reamp it through a real amp. Mm-hmm. Um, there is not, there's not an ABR album that has rhythm guitars that weren't reamped, you know, with, with a, a tube amp of some sort. But what's interesting now is we'll use a real amp, but we'll run it through a cab sim. <laughs> like there's still digital yeah. stuff going on. <laughs> it's not, I mean, that's more recently in the last, last few albums, but the things you can do with cab sims are so limitless now too. Like, I don't know what the the software our producer uses, but I mean, you can spend, you can put, you, you drive yourself nuts with all the combinations of digital mic placements and blending this cab with that one. And uh, it, it's, it's endless, but it's fun. You know, if you have an ear for that and you have um, the interest in it, like, boy, going down the tone rabbit holes, is it's it, it can get time consuming and dangerous <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the whole thing though it doesn't matter what you're, whether you're talking about analog or digital uh going down the tone rabbit hole is time consuming and dangerous either yes. way it's <laughs> <laughs> right i can remember You've pulling my sides. hair out trying to like find a ground hum somewhere in like that old rig i was talking about that had a gazillion wires and pedals and stuff i'm like something's buzzing when I have this like on this one patch like like could not figure like that kind of stuff would drive me insane and then I'm like trying to put like these plastic buffers on all the screws that are that I'm racking the stuff up with and stuff and nothing's right. working and I'm just like and you know at the end of the day I don't know if anyone else would have even noticed like the slight hum but it's you get obsessive with the details of tone and I've I've talked to our sound guy about this and how we get like we get so critical about the smallest things in our like we'll go through my my patches and like EQ the reverb decay separately, you know, and EQ mm-hmm. the delay trail separately and like just these extremely nuanced detailed things. And and I go, you know, who's going to notice this, Chris? Like, no one's even going to know. But he's like, dude, it's the sum of the parts, man. If you get everything as good as you can, all these details come together, like the tuning of the drums and the EQ of the bass and the, the mic placement of everything. Like, it all comes together, and it just sounds better in the end. Mm-hmm. When you worry about the details, you get everything as good as it can be, and the sum of the parts does make a difference. And it can get even smaller than people realize. I just came back from the NAM show, and I was working. Uh, I, I'm a part owner of uh, Stringjoy Guitar Strings, as the listeners are aware. And I was working our booth, and man, I, I hadn't done that before. I, I'd never, never actually been stuck at a booth at NAM like that, and it was very eye opening because I'm realizing how much Scott, like the main founder, and the rest of the crew have done done this all before. And that whole sum of all the parts thing is something I kept having to go over and over and over with people because people would come up and be like, so what's the deal? Yeah. It's like, well, it's not one thing. There are like a million things to go over with just a guitar string. But right. then you start adding in, you know, cables and amps and delay pedals and placements and different EQs. And it, it, <sighs> like the amount of, you know, 15 to 10 to 15 minute like spiels I would give to under 
to tell people the difference in our guitar string construction, that's one that's one part. That is one part of a very complex series of things. Even if you're talking about digital, which looks easier, it's like it's all in one box. But you go in there and start dissecting all of the different options and all of the different mic placements, all of the different EQs. Like you said, one reverb tail is doing something else. The delay is doing something else. And, oh, that's a little muddy. Maybe we can... Maybe we can clean that up and brighten right. that up a little bit. It There's, is. It's really the sum of all the parts that makes all the difference in the world. And if you talk to anybody that spends a lot of time with this stuff, it's it's rare for me to talk to a band or somebody that I enjoyed their guitar sound and have them go like, I don't know, I just plug in and that's what comes out. They're usually like, oh, no, I have all of these particular things right. that I'm very particular about. So the sum of all the parts is a is a great way to put it. Yeah. It is. It it, it it gets to be a lot, but it's after, my whole life. Yeah, so. I was gonna say, <laughs> <laughs> after twenty years of playing, man, you just keep getting deeper and deeper into it. So mm-hmm. that's just the way it goes. It is. Do you ever miss the the analog rig at all? Are there times where you're up there and going, I kind of wish I had a cab blowing my pants right now? It's funny because playing through a cab does just sound so much more forgiving. Mm-hmm. Um, playing on in your monitors, which I guess is something I didn't mention, but you know we're we're on in ears, and I'm playing to just a DI that's getting sent to our ears, and we're just sending the DI out front. There's no live cabs on stage. It keeps everything very clean for our for our sound engineer who's mixing the show. There's no bleed from stage that he has to compete with with the PA. Like he can just get a nice clear mix, which is great. But hearing yourself right into your eardrum is is both wonderful and awful because you can hear every single like scrape of your pick you can hear every nuanced mistake you make and that can mess with your confidence mm-hmm. and when you're playing through a cab and like monitoring off a wedge on stage and not you know blasting the music straight into your ears um it's just more forgiving. It's more lively. Uh, it feels better to play. Um, but I think in time, you know, I've been playing on in years since 2010 and I'm used to it now. And I would hate to, I think I would really hate to go back to stage. Wedges. It would number one, be terrible for my hearing. I and mean, it's so much better for our hearing in the long run to, to use in your monitors. But, I think it's made me a better player because I've been able to hear these little nuanced mistakes and pick scrapes and stuff that I wouldn't know. I wouldn't notice at all if I was playing out of a cab that's mic'd and coming out of a stage wedge. So as I've gotten comfortable with that, I'm sure it's cleaned up a lot of my playing just being so obsessed with exactly what's getting shot into my head, you know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's a. There's something though. I I don't know. I don't play live to thousands of people every night, so it's a a different thing. But I've been recording a lot more using sort of a hybrid analog digital rig lately. Yeah. And once in a while, I'll just go back to just the classic tube amp experience and just crank it up out here. And I'm like, well, yeah, this is kind of what got me into all this in the right. first place. There <laughs> is something pure that feels good about that. And I mm-hmm. I, I haven't sold. I've I've sold off and got rid of a bunch of the gear from my analog days, but I will never sell 
my 5150 head. I still have a Mesa 212 in my in my studio space that you know I can play through when I want. And I like saved my favorite pedals. You know, there's there's pedals that were just staples for me back in the day that I, I just want for you know the memories. They were important yeah. to me, and I want to keep them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are the pedals? Um, the I'll boss. Be in bad trouble if I don't ask that question. No, that's fine. <laughs> the, I use the Boss RV Five, which was my reverb pedal that I really loved. There was a modulation um, setting on that pedal that I loved, and I still love to this day. It was a really cool, like singing uh reverb sound that I've never really mm-hmm. been able to replicate even with my my axe effects and stuff. I'm sure that there's a way to do it. Um but it was just really easy to get that sound that I loved with that boss RV5. And then my delay pedal that I used that I really loved was the boss DD seven, I think. Which isn't like anything special. It's not an expensive pedal. It's not like a crazy delay or anything, but I I really liked it it was kind of the first one that i really messed around with and i just got very comfortable with the sound that that pedal made and it was it was a staple for me for a long time live and then my ibanez ts9 i mean i I love that tube screamer pedal i always preferred it over the maxon od808 like i said i think earlier i just it felt like it was a little bit bitier um in a in a way that i liked i think that the maxon od808 is a little bit of a more mellow, warmer sounding overdrive pedal, which is cool too. It, it, it's it's great, but I like that nasty bite of the TS9. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, dude, we are nearing the end of the podcast. I've got two classic questions that I like to wrap up on. But before I do that, I like to give the guests the opportunity to you know, take the stage and shout out anybody you want to shout out, plug anything you want to plug, say anything you want to say. There's a couple thousand people paying attention right now, and you can oh boy. say whatever you want. Well, um, I'm excited about a new record we released uh, probably about a month ago called Death Below. It's our 10th studio album, which is wild to think that we have 10 albums now, but um, I'm really proud of the record. So if you haven't heard our new album, Death Below, please check that out. It's available wherever you listen to your music. Um, and for you gear nerds and guitar nerds, um, I have a signature guitar. Um, it's the Ibanez JBBM30 that um, you can check out if you're interested in that RGA body style that I was talking about earlier. Um, I love that guitar. I play it live every night. I'm, you know, it's it's I'm actually using it. You know, I think a lot of guys have like their signature models and they might not play them live and they might play something else. But I, it's 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 my go-to instrument. And, uh, you know, it's a good worker, a good workhorse, good metal guitar. Nice. Very nice. All right. Classic questions. And maybe you already answered this. This will be interesting to find out. The first one is, what is your favorite boss pedal? Um, I'm going to go with, (laughs) well, (laughs) this is actually really hard because I know I was just talking about those, um, the boss RV5 reverb and the boss, uh, dd7 delay i'm gonna go with the boss tu2 tuner as my my favorite (laughs) tuner of all time i still tune on a tu2 before every single show right before we walk out that's what we all tune on 
very comfortable with the TU2. I'm sure it's not the most detailed, specific tuner, but there's something nice about not sitting there for a minute on a string trying to get it to sit just right. Like it, it gives you that in tune green light a little bit more liberally than some other tuners do. And I like that. <laughs> I appreciate yeah. that for live. <laughs> I, I get it. The TU2, that's, that's probably. It's got to be up there with one of the most popular answers to that question. Oh, okay, right like, on. Can I say the tuner? Is it okay if I say the tuner? Yeah. Like, is the tuner your favorite? Then it's fine. So it was. It, and the NS2 would have been my second favorite. The gate. I used that for ages, and I really liked that noise gate. Mm-hmm. It's a very good pedal. They make very good pedals. I'm a big, I'm a big Boss fan over here. Me too. So Me always, too. It's always interesting. All right. The final question. This is the one. Gets a little bit dicey, a little bit controversial, okay. but we'll see where it goes. What is your favorite kind of pizza? Detroit style. No ah. hesitation. Detroit Easy. style is having a moment right now. Detroit style. I was in Detroit last night, and I had my favorite pizza in the entire world. There's a restaurant called Nikki's, N-I-K-I-S. Um, and it's like a Greek restaurant. They do the best Detroit style pizza. I love it. I was so excited that we were getting it last night. We get it. We try to get it every time we play Detroit. And last night was actually the 20 year anniversary of our first show ever. So it was like, whoa, kind of, of, yeah, it was a big deal. It was to the day we played a show on a 20 year anniversary. Um, and our tour manager got us a ton of Nikki's Detroit style pizza and it's as good as I remembered. Very nice. What are your preferred toppings and all that? I'm very simple, dude. I I really like pepperoni, like cheese and pepperoni, man. This is my favorite pizza. You can't go wrong. No, I like Hawaiian too. If I have to get like, oh no, hold on, I'll 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 get into Hawaiian. I'm I'm down. Uh All right, this podcast is over. We can't talk. Nah. (laughs) I like pineapple in my pizza. I'm done. I'm anti pineapple. All around, though. I'm consistent oh, with it. it. Well, I think you yeah. might be in the minority with that take, dude. I understand maybe on a pizza, not everyone's into it, but I think most people like pineapple in general. I think they do, too. I think I am in the minority. <laughs> I only like it uh, with Al Pastor, and then I don't want the chunks in it. I understand it I has see. to be cooked with it. Yeah, it's just something about it. I don't know. I've yeah, that's tried. all right. That's all right. We I've all tried. got our We all got our flaws, man. Yeah, it's a flaw. I'm kidding. I'd always, I would kidding. always, always, always rather like something than not like it. I always say that. And I, I, I am the person who will go back to things that I used to not like and be like, do I still not like this? Right. And well, sometimes good. the answer is, is, is no, I like this now. It's happened several times where I'm like, no, I'm actually into this now. And I, I wish I liked it before. So I'm glad that you're maybe open one day. in that way. That's, that's actually impressive. I don't know that everyone would go back and try stuff that they think they hate. Yeah. Yeah. I have to be in the mood. I'm not sure. going to do it, you know, every time, but Feeling a little uh, adventurous. I'll do it. Yeah. It's like, all right, it's been like three years. Let's give that another try. And, and sometimes it works. Let's so. see how my palate has changed. <laughs> it, mine's changed a lot, like a, a lot, a lot. So I think mo- most people's would, if they branched out a little yeah, bit here and there. I agree. I agree. In, in everything, music, food, whatever. Yes. Wise words. Dude, thank you so much for doing this. This was a lot of fun. I really yeah, no enjoyed the, like all the details. I like those details. Yeah, dude. I feel like it really went down. Uh, like my throat is dry from that that gear 
history I tried to take you on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know the ABR fans are really going to appreciate that, and I did too. So nice, which that was great, uh, dude. Thank you so much. We'll see what kind of shenanigans we can get into on Patreon. All right, sounds good. All right, man. All right, everybody. For JB, this is Blake, and as always, folks, good luck and good tones. All right, everybody, thank you so much for hanging out for this episode. If you need more of this content and you want to help keep this show on the road, on the road? No, not on the road, on the air, please go to patreon.com slash tonemob, where for five bucks a month, you can help keep this thing going. It really, really makes a world of difference. Thank you so much to everybody that's done that. It is huge. And for five bucks a month, you get extra bonus episodes beamed right to your ears every single week. So please, please, please check that out if you can. It really helps out immensely. And you also get the ad-free feed when you go over there. So if you aren't so into the ads, which I do understand, you can go there and get the ad-free feed along with the extra episodes for five bucks a month or just the ad-free feed for three bucks a month. So go check that out if that is your thing. Please spread the word about the podcast. Please share this with anybody that you might think needs it in their lives. It seriously makes a huge difference. Please, please, please share this with somebody. We were in the top 5% of shared podcasts on Spotify last year, and I'd love for that number to crack even higher if possible. And the only way that can happen is if you grab this link and share it with your friends. So thank you so much. Please tell your friends. Please do that. That would really help out a lot. And go check out August Burns Red. They are on a tour right now. And if you are into that kind of music, you're going to like them. All right, everybody. I'll talk to you next week or maybe even sooner than that on the Internet. Very, very soon. Later. One last thing before we totally sign off here. I just want to remind you that if you do any shopping at Stringjoy, that's Stringjoy Guitar Strings made in Nashville, that will help me out as well. As I've said for years, I'm heavily involved in that company. And I really do think they're making the best products on the market. So if you would like to try custom strings, go to ToneMob.com Stringjoy and check them out today. I seriously, seriously, seriously love what the team down there is doing. I help them out with all kinds of things. And by you supporting them, you are also supporting me as well. And hey, you need some strings, so why not get some custom strings just for your guitar and playing style. Again, the link for that is tonemob.com stringjoy, and that will take you right to their website, and you can do all your shopping through there, and that will help everyone involved out. So thank you very much. Talk to you next time. We are brought to you by the wonderful folks at Gun Street Wiring Shop. Yes, Gun Street Wiring Shop. I've talked about them before. I used to say based out of Bend, Oregon, but guess what? Sean moved to my neck of the woods. Sean's in Portland. Sean is awesome and has helped me with a bunch of stuff lately. And if you have wiring needs for your guitar, he can help you too. If you want to get weird with it, he can get weird. If you just need to spruce things up a little bit, there's your guy. He takes all the guesswork out of doing your guitar wiring, and he makes it simple, and his customer service is top-notch, and I can't say enough good things about Gunstory as a company. I really respect Sean and what he's all about, and the product is top-notch. I've got... Three different guitars that now have Gun Street harnesses in them, and I could not be happier. So go to GunStreetWiringShop.com and check them out.
One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the one hit thunder or nothing more than a one hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast.